You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. City of memories, city of mirrors. Am I alone? Yes and no. I am a man of many descendants. They lie hidden away. Some are here, those who once called this island home. They slumber beneath the streets of the forgotten metropolis. Others lie elsewhere, my ambassadors, awaiting final use. In slumber, they become themselves again. In dreams, they relive their human lives. Which world is the real one? Only when they're aroused does the hunger obliterate them, taking them over, their souls spilling into mine, and so I leave them as they are. It is the only mercy I can offer. Oh, my brothers, twelve in sum, you were sorely used by this world. I spoke to you like the god you thought I was, though in the end I could not save you. I would not say I failed to see this coming. From the start, your fates were written. You could not help being what you were, which was the truth of us. Consider the species known as man. We lie, we cheat, we want what others have and take it. We make war upon each other and the earth. We harvest lives in multitudes. We have mortgaged the planet and spent the cash on trifles. We may have loved, but never well enough. We never truly knew ourselves. We forgot the world. Now it has forgotten us. How many years will pass before jealous nature reclaims this place, before it is as if it never existed at all? Buildings will crumble, skyscrapers will come crashing to the ground, trees will sprout and spread their canopies, the oceans will rise, rinsing the west rest away. It is said that one day all will be water again, a vast ocean will blanket the world. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. How will God, if there is such a God, remember us? Will he even know our names? All stories end when they have returned to their beginnings. What can we do but remember in his stead? I go abroad, into the streets of the empty city, always returning. I take my place upon the steps beneath the inverted heavens. I watch the clock. Its mournful faces stay the same. Time frozen at the moment of man's departure, the last train exiting the station. Justin Cronin is the author of Mary and O'Neill, which won the Penn Hemingway Award and the Stephen Crane Prize. He's the author of The Summer Guest and the best-selling novels, The Passage and The Twelve. The completion of that trilogy is his new novel, The City of Mirrors. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you again. As the title might inform us, this novel takes place in yet another landscape, another Mm -hmm. American landscape. Mm -hmm. You've moved from the forests to the plains, mm-hmm. to the cities. And I think that's an interesting progression just in terms of the basic landscapes of mm-hmm. the novels. Yeah. Well, I wanted to capture something about the North American continent. You know, the story is, as I imagined the passage originally, part of the thematic underpinnings of the whole story was a continent that has been you know, forgotten and is unknown to many of its survivors. And so their encounters with it are momentous encounters. In that sense, the passage, the first book, is really rather like a Western in a lot of ways because characters leave a protected enclave. They know nothing about the world, and for the first time they encounter, in this case, the sort of the, the majesty and the sublime greatness and danger of the American West, right? So which is one of the great themes in all American literature. And each of the books moves through certain distinct American landscapes. And, of course, at the heart of North American life would be the great metropoli that we have built upon this continent and New York. And it's not a spoiler because, of course, anybody who's looked at the cover of the book knows that New York must figure somehow. New York is, of course, the greatest of these. I think that you mentioned the word um, epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that what, was, what interested me was that you had, Western, you had an epiphany that the fiction of epiphany, which is 
the mm-hmm. primary uh, mode of American literary fiction mm-hmm. up until recently. I yeah. think that's gone undergoing a big shift. Perhaps yeah. um, you had. It's, I think it's funny that you had it. Ironic, I guess, that you had an epiphany that epiphanic fiction was not for you, and that you would decide to pursue a really plot-driven novel mm-hmm. uh, series. And I think uh, so. That's a big decision for somebody who's spent a lot of time teaching writing mm-hmm. in the literary scene, in mm-hmm. the academic literary scene. Yeah, well, the academic literary scene is one I guess I, you know, inadvertently signed up for by going to graduate school sometime <laughs> in the '80s. You know, and and the '80s. First of all, the academic, the sort of academic environment in which a lot of people, you know, apprentice to to writing these days because it's the only way you can afford to do it. Somebody gives you a small stipend and you go to some place like Iowa City for two years where it's easy to be poor and you write your stories. Those environments, among other things, sort of privileged the short story naturally. And when I was there in the '80s, minimalism, sort of under the Raymond, under the banner of Raymond Carver, very much held sway. And plot was kind of a dirty word. I mean, mm. I don't think we ever even talked about plot. And you know, so I, I kind of did what everybody else was doing, not really knowing what else I might do. But as it turns out, you know, I kind of looked into my heart, you know, over the years and realized that I really liked plot, you know, that's what really drew me to storytelling. And in particular, I liked certain kinds of stories. I like stories where you have, you know, private lives, you know, conducted against a background of enormous public events, right? And that kind of interaction between the, the personal and the public is really the sort of core of what I like to do now and will go on doing. I mean, the passage is a story about families and individuals, but in the background, of course, there's this tremendous thing going on, questions of, you know, the fate of human civilization and my characters, even though they are, you know, people just like you and me, they get up, they eat breakfast, they have children, they go to a job. Nevertheless, they are caught up in this in a way that's enormously significant. And I think that's in some ways the most interesting plot engine that there can possibly be. Well, one of the things I think that you have uh, perfected is the idea of showing us the emotional inner lives of people who are at the edge of or even caught up in very great events Mm -hmm. and then dialing back and taking us to another time, another layer of time, Mm -hmm. a hundred years in the future, a thousand years in the future, and showing us the inner lives of people who understand only understand the historic aspects of what we understand right. emotionally. So you build up a kind of a dual emotional core right. when we are reading about events in the past, in, in particular in this book, mm-hmm. we get some great backstory. Right. Well, there's, I, I've, I'm, off, I'm often noted as the guy who, one, never met a secondary character he, he, he didn't want to move in with and marry, you know, which is true. Um, and, and the other thing is people notice that, you know, in, this, in, these, uh, in these novels, a great deal of time is spent in, and I'll throw this in quotes, in the past because every moment in the book has its own particular past. Mm-hmm. And I guess if there's an operating thesis behind the whole thing, it's the extent to which the, the past is not gone. You know, as, as Faulkner famously said, the past isn't, isn't past, you know, the past isn't gone, it isn't even past. And so, you know, there's, there's essentially three time frames in the novel, and one is the here and now, and one is about 100 years from now, and one is about 1,000 years from now. And each of those time frames, they... Is is one they, they they create pressure on each other, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you exactly you know, if you're 100 years from now, there's something that happened you know 100 years ago, where as you and I are sitting in this room, right? There's something that happened 100 years ago that had direct bearing on that moment. And I guess the older I get, the more aware I am of the connection between you know the past and the future. My my parents were born in the 30s before the Second World War, and my son, who was born in 2000. Three, whose life expectancy is probably at least a hundred because of his age now, you know, he'll he'll live to see a future that not only can I not really imagine, but you know, imagine what my my parents, born in 1936, what they would think of the future he will see in the year 2103 when he's 100 years old, and these things are all bound together, and it's you know, 100 years is a, is a speck. It's a speck, a speck of time. I really love the way that. Uh, the different times inform one another. Mm-hmm. And I, as you put this together, uh, were you, how, I know that you do a lot of planning. Do mm-hmm. you plan how we will encounter each time 
or do you just plan out what's going to happen in each time and then uh, freewheel the encounter? I'd, 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 the, the, the analog I would make here is, um, is jazz. Is jazz, this music, because and I'm, I'm, I'm no, I, play, I like that. That's I, a good. I, I play the perfect. piano. I play the piano not very well. It's one of my midlife projects is to become good enough at the piano by the time I'm say sixty to play in the lobby of Nordstrom's at Christmas. You know that guy? Like I'm hoping to be as good as that guy. Okay, um, but uh, I, you know, I played a little bit as a kid, and I remembered the chords, and I can read music, so I go back to play it, and I bought the real book, which is the the sort of book of jazz standards that all jazz musicians know, and it's essentially a bunch of melodies, each you know, each written on one page, a bunch of melodies, and then the chords, and and then you just figure out the rest, right? And the plans I make for the books are like the real book. You know, here's the melody, here's the chords, here's the dominant, here's the tonic, right? It's a two, five, one, and it's in G, you know? Uh And then, so you know where you're going, you know how the song's going to end, right? Because it can only end really one way, right? Because of the way the song is built and where it starts. But in the meantime, there's lots of room for play, right? And discovery. You always know where you're going. You're always going to get back to the to that final moment of bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, right? You know, <laughs> one of the few songs that can play reasonably well. Um, you know where you're going to go, but in the meantime, there's, there's room for improvisation. And doing that, of course, new things are revealed to you that maybe you already know and didn't know you knew it, I think, is pretty much how I think novels work. I don't think anything's a complete surprise. It's just a surprise to your conscious mind. Your unconscious was always in charge, and that always knew that stuff, and just tapping into it is really what you're trying to do. These novels might be described as post-apocalyptic, but apocalypse never seems to be quite as final as those who experience it Mm -hmm. think it to be. And one of the things I was thinking was that most visions of the apocalypse show an aftermath of that where everything's uniform. There's just a few people running around. Mm -hmm. But I think what I like about yours is that you've adopted an old... uh, William Gibson quote, where he said, the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and you have yeah. an apocalypse that arrives that's yeah. not completely evenly distributed either. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I, 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 what apocalypse has ever happened where everything ended? You know, there's always something that's still there, right? There's, mm-hmm. always, there's, always, there's always some embers still burning. And when you write about the end of the world, what, the decision you're really making is, what are the embers I'm most interested in? Um. Speaking of which, I, I, you have a, a wonderful cast of characters in, in this book, but it's really fun to see the ones that in each book you kind of turn your spotlight to. Uh, I, and there is a little shift, is there not? Yeah, yeah. Each book kind of gets a new emphasis, right? Yeah. And, and for me, uh, boy, I was just absolutely digging from the moment I met him to uh, uh, Mr. Fanning. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so talk about creating it because you take him back to your college years, right? Practically. Yeah, and I, uh, wait, I'm guessing those were your college years. Yeah, there's a lot of you know, I borrowed <laughs> a lot of the social details of that man's past from my own life. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'd always I went to Harvard and I always thought, boy, someday I got to write about that place. Oh my God, <laughs> with its very specific set of social customs and pecking orders and so on. So, I mean, Fanning is the Oz behind the curtain uh, for the whole trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there, by the way, there's plenty of Wizard of Oz references going on in this book because I just couldn't <laughs> stop myself. Um, but so yeah, he's the Oz, so he needs to be the one that steps into the light. And each of the novels, as you know, as readers know, spends a certain amount of time in the here and now. That's the term I use for it because it's not really the present; it's mm-hmm. an imaginary present but it goes back in time to something before the the great viral catastrophe and um shows you something you you know that is formative to Mm -hmm. the experiences of my main cast of characters 100 years in the future and the one that we've always needed to know is like who is fanning what is fanning about if he's kind of the mastermind of all this or at least the accidental mastermind you know what what is what is his story and what is his catastrophe the writer madison Smart Bell was one of my teachers in grad school, super smart guy. Mm. I actually interviewed him, I'm talking about the early 90s, long ago, right? The way you're interviewing me now, right? I interviewed him for a piece, and we talked about, oh, I can't remember which one of his novels we were talking about, but he used the term aboriginal catastrophe, mm. right? The, the, thing, the thing that before a narrative starts, the thing prior to that, that really sets the whole thing 
in motion. The, right. the, the, the disaster at the beginning of time. You know what I mean? Before and, the before time. Yeah, the before the before the before time, right? Mm-hmm. And Fanning's story is, of course, the aboriginal catastrophe of everything that happens in all three books. And guess what? It's a love triangle story <laughs> that happens at Harvard in the late 80s and early 90s, a little after my time there. That's, you know, I wish I could have made it my classmate, you know, <laughs> but I borrowed so, so much of my own life because it was low hanging fruit to do it. You know, I mean, Harvard is just such an interesting and particular place that it was super easy. And, uh, and I got to say that part, writing that part of the book was in, in a sort of, it was sort of dark fun, I guess would be what I call it, dark fun. Well, I, I imagine that, um, in a writing pro having been in a writing program mm. and coming back to Harvard, you never, uh, envisioned that you'd revisit, um, your glory days in the form I of a glory days, a, your, your, your <laughs> giant of a giant vampire western, right? Yeah. apocalyptic yeah. western. Yeah. It's completely uh, the opposite of what. If you're, I think if you could go back in time and tell yourself that, you would just go, "You are out of your mind." Oh, Justin. I know. All you have to, you, know, you go. I start. I started writing these books in 2005, so 10, you know, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, if you had told me. Ten and a half years ago, that I would have been doing this, I would have told you you were nuts. You know, I would have. It just, you know, it just sailed in out of the blue, and it was the right thing at the right moment for me, and it occupied ten years of my ten years of my life, both my professional life and then, of course, my actual life. You know, my kids grew up. Uh, you know, a lot of things happened in that period of time. Ten years is a is a long time in anybody's life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You only get so many decades, right? right. That's ten Christmases, my friend. That's ten summer vacations. (laughs) Think of that. Uh, It's also enough time for ten personal apocalypses, and I think Mm -hmm. that that's something that also informs this book because Mm -hmm. within each of these stories of these people, there are. You know, we can have a personal apocalypse that's mm-hmm. as completely devastating to us. In fact, maybe more devastating mm-hmm. to us than the end of the civilization would be. Sure. Who cares about the end of civilization? You know, if your marriage goes down the toilet, right. you, you'd welcome it, maybe. Yeah, sure. No, exactly. And it's those it's those personal experiences, the things that happen to people at totally a ground level, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe historians will find them fascinating. Maybe they'll leave traces in some manner. But... For you as a person, you know, that's that life occurs there. It occurs with your relationships with your children. It occurs with your relationships with your colleagues. It's, you know, it's the good days and the bad days. And when I started writing this trilogy, I th- had this enormous plot engine that meant that my characters were running for their lives at all time, at all times, but they were still living their lives, you know. So the world may end, but... If you're one of the survivors, you're still going to fall in love and you may have a child and you'll have a job and you'll have friends and you'll have rivals and you'll have all the things that you and I have. You just have them in a situation of danger and material scarcity, but you still have them. You Mm -hmm. still have a life, right? And if civilization is going to survive the apocalypse, that's where that's going to be decided, right? It's not going to be decided in the heavens. It's going to be decided right, you know, at ground level where people decide, you know, you're my friend and I'm loyal to you, or you're my child and I'll give everything to protect you. That's where things get decided. That's, that's at true throughout this uh, book, but also too, this is a book where fate is mentioned early and mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. And, and the characters often contemplate what got them where they were Mm -hmm. it seems like it could not be coincidence well it's you know i think that when you're in a position um where you're aware of large public events Mm. right all of a sudden it's just kind of necessary and a a normal human reaction to question the role of providence in these events Mm. right it's just it's just natural we do right this thing is so large that's happening is it in some ways ordained by a divine intelligence that is paying attention to human affairs is my survival um a matter of 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 divine curiosity and interest right Mm -hmm. the fact that i'm here and so many people are not i mean when those things happen and really when any crisis happens in people's lives they often grapple with this question. I mean, when it, in the course of the 10 years in which I was writing this book, for instance, my wife and my daughter, right around the time I turned in the passage, it was just before the passage was going to be published, I think, uh, my wife and daughter were in a horrible car accident. I mean, horrible. And, you know, my, it was pilot error. My wife 
driving my daughter back from camp, rolled her SUV three times at 70 miles an hour on a freeway. Gee, right? me. Yeah, exactly. And she and my daughter Holy walked cow. out of it. They walked out of it. And everybody who saw this assumed that when they, you know, because traffic stopped, everybody got out, a semi-blocked the highway. Um, and everybody, you know, sort of assumed that when they looked inside the car, they'd see the worst thing they'd ever seen. And what they saw was my wife sitting in the driver's seat and my daughter in the passenger seat holding her iPhone calling 911. They <laughs> literally emerged without a scratch. Okay. Wow. And for a long period of time, you know, the word miracle was kind of entered our life from many, from many places, from witnesses, from friends, um, and from my wife, you know, who as she said, had just about to have the worst, a mother's worst fears realized that she, would ins- that she had killed her own kid by reaching for a tissue in the car and losing control, right? Which is what happened. And, you know, something like that happens and you sit around and say, okay, I got to survive this. Why? Is it just chance? Is the universe just a series of accidents, you know, um, kind of generally organized by the laws of physics? Or is there a purpose and a meaning to everything and events, therefore, you know, are pinned within that, you know, pinned on that, you know, that board of meaning, right? So, you know, does it, should I just, okay, I survived this terrible car accident, should I just go about my daily business or have I learned something about the universe? And that's just a natural human impulse, mm. right? And it's one of our better impulses, I think, is to look up once in a while. And, you know, not just look at the ground and the, the square yard of dirt we're supposed to be plowing and look up. I, this book also contemplates early and often, in fact, throughout the trilogy, just what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Who are humans? How do we define that? How yeah. do we corral that in? I mean, we, you and I might say we're human and... Then we look at somebody like Paul Pot or some other right. crazy dictator, right. Kim Jong-il or Un, or which yeah. was ever in power. Mm-hmm. You say, is that person human? And then th- discussing that kind of definition of human, using the, the elements of the fantastic, you do a great job of taking internal discussions mm-hmm. we might have. You know, was that really human of me to be that mean to my child to say that terrible thing? Right. Uh, you externalize that, and I think that's uh, one of the powers of uh, fantastic fiction is to allow us mm-hmm. to discuss things that we don't really want to talk about. Well, fantastic fiction, which is a term I prefer to like speculative fiction or science fiction or any of the subcategories that you know, post-apocalyptic fiction or whatever. I, I like that. I like that term. Um, is has always been um, a good place to engage in um, philosophy, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. I mean, exactly. that's, that's how I started engaging with it, somewhat deeper literature than the Hardy Boys, right? <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, somewhere along, you know, somewhere in middle school, I started encountering the, the science fiction of my era, and it was all science fiction that, in some ways or another, grappled with large questions. It did. It was perfect. It, it was what people were doing then. The Martian Chronicles, all of Ray Bradbury, he was writing these, these allegories of human nature, uh, asking basic questions about good and evil and... and um, Transplanting uh, to, American uh, suburbia uh, to Mars. What yeah, a brilliant idea. I loved that novel. I loved it. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, I remember that. And, um, and then, of course, you know, the, a lot of the novels of of the end of the world, you know, Cold War fiction, I read an awful lot. And they were all very, they were all probing the fundamental questions about, you know, since since science has learned to destroy humanity, what are our new responsibilities? Does that make us just intrinsically evil? Should we just get off stage now? Anyway, <laughs> speculative fiction was terrific at this stuff, and it still is, even mm-hmm. when it, you know, it can take the form of mere entertainment, but it's always a terrific uh, chessboard for ideas. And uh, that's one of the reasons I... I took it up. It seemed like a great place to put all my all my midlife concerns. You know, <laughs> I mean, you can you can actually look at City of Mirrors as the ultimate midlife crisis novel. <laughs> it is. There's actually all the because yeah, I'm 53. I'm having mm-hmm. a doozy right now. And um, the way in which at a certain point in your life, a certain kind of ability to the, the awareness that you're closer to one end of life than to the other and now i'm not going to use the word right and the future your your children will live in is one you will not personally live to see and you get a sense of the bigger sweep of things at the same time you ex- start start to experience a kind of exhaustion with trivia right that's where my characters are <laughs> in this novel they caught up to my age you know uh, you know, Peter and I love- Sarah are empty nesters in this book, <laughs> right? They got empty nester issues. I, I thought that was a wonderful scene that in this kind of post-apocalyptic 
world mm-hmm. that we have this guy who he's just going to work and he's going to the construction yeah. and he's got these empty nest issues. I think that's a, one of the things that makes me think this feels like a, this has a feel much more like a realistic vision yeah. of the of what might happen if there was some huge catastrophe. Right, because it's not all going to be The Walking Dead where everybody's running around forever. I mean, the, right. you know, I like The Walking Dead, but my real question about the world of The Walking Dead is what's, what's going to be like 100 years from now, right. right? You know, like what kind of civilization would be built by this? And, you know, will the zombies live forever is a good question. But um, that's there's that that's a series, that's an apocalyptic story, which I really enjoy, but it's in a, it's still in its constant state of emergency, whereas eventually things would have to settle down and people would indeed need to conduct ordinary lives that have been altered fundamentally in some way because of the pre- of the omnipresent danger and the absence of larger social and material structures right mm-hmm. you know you do, there are no cars right <laughs> okay <laughs> right you know there are no cars there's uh, well uh, government doesn't exist in its previous forms and so on so uh, but once you get to that point of course people are going to simply find a way to conduct daily lives and daily relationships Peter's going to you know get up every morning and go to the roof and sling a hammer and then go pick up his kid at school because guess what that's what people have to do and that's what's important to him too that's how they experience life I experience life that's how a guy you know in a post-apocalyptic landscape who lives inside a walled compound that's how he's going to experience life it's interesting too that you you mentioned this the sense of emergency Mm -hmm. and, and that it comes to an end and I'm when when that announcement is made, I, I thought, wow, that is such a great, you know, a tweak on mm. this because, uh, yes, emergencies do end. Mm-hmm. And now this is a book also about building a government, mm-hmm. building a, a nation again from scratch. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's um, the whole idea of the Western kind of comes full circle. Out of, of exactly. Because what's left is essentially the Old West, that kind of environment where the, the tools that people have are more or less identical to the tools uh, that existed at that era when people were settling in the West. The social customs are very similar because they're naturalistic. They flow from the environment. And, uh, you know, people are... They're going to go out and they're make, going to make farms, and, you know, and <laughs> and uh, raise kids, and you know, and worry about the weather, and go to dances, you know, at the <laughs> barn, you know, and so the, the the story, you know, turns towards in some ways the kind of western the whole thing always always wanted to be and of course there's there's more to it than that this all turns out to be a huge problem of course because it's a novel and they're spanning in new york the sort of most visible physically visible vestige of the past it's mm-hmm. a place like new york that will most still look like the past right exactly and they got to go to the past the whole all my characters got to go to the past as fanning himself is trapped in the past this story of a college love triangle and it's in the catastrophe that ensued from it they have to go to the past to solve the problem of the future you know there are so many wonderful touches in this book and i i love you know just the idea that the black market it Mm. is something you can just never get rid of no 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 yeah it's always going to be part of it and and that's i sent in a sense that's almost the most important uh engine of the economy right. when you strip away everything else that's all that's left yeah no exactly i mean the the, the trade as it's called is a, a, a not just sort of tolerated but managed economic subculture of of the of the republic of texas which is really curvil in a few towns that are springing up around it and managing it making use of it bargaining with it it's just how things are sin sin will never go away either people will have children but they're also going to get drunk gam- and gamble right and it's just that's just what we're going to do at the end of a hard day of of uh, of farming right? or or you know construction people are going to want to go misbehave and so there's this culture of sort of managed misbehavior and a way of getting access to materials that are not that are free of of uh, regulation you I bring back some of our favorite characters and mm-hmm. do some really wild things with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thinking of Alicia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have so much fun with her. And I think you do a, a this is, uh, too, another reminder that here's a novel one uh, from the world of fantastic fiction that mm-hmm. does something that's not often done in fantastic fiction where the most of the pantheon of the strongest mm-hmm. and most important characters are women. Yeah. Uh, that, 
that was a uh, that was a deliberate decision on your part. Well, it was it was I would say it was a deliberate decision, but not entirely on my part. Oh. Interestingly, because the original cast of characters was structured not by me, but by nine, my nine year old daughter. Oh. As you recall, the yeah. whole the whole thing came up because my daughter and I sort of just spun out a story together when uh-huh. when she was eight and I was running and she was riding her bicycle and we sort of just for laughs came up with a story. She said, "Let's let's write a story together." So I said, "Fine," and we had two rules: everything had to be interesting and it had to have one character with red hair because my daughter's a redhead and that's where the original outline came from mm-hmm. for the first book in the trilogy was those conversations and she you know she was kind of in charge of who was in the story right it was fine and i was just agreeable to everything right this is like your daughter you're you're dressing up for your daughter's tea party right yeah pretty much yeah i dressed up for my daughter's tea party so first of all she named all the characters all the major characters were named by her okay right? i didn't come up with a single one of the names right wow and um and of course, my daughter, you know, she was a girl, so she was really interested in the girl characters. And <laughs> um, and I came to be very comfortable with that because, among other things, I'd always written about women in a very, very close way. For instance, in my first book, there's a scene of labor and delivery, childbirth, from a woman's point of view. You're like in her head when she's having a baby, mm-hmm. right? And I knew that was kind of risky, but I... Watched my wife had a ba- have a baby, and it seemed like it was something I was capable of doing as a writer. It's our job to describe experiences we have not have had, and in some cases can never have. And in my second book, um, one of the major narrators, first person narrator, is a woman. It just seemed like a natural thing to me, and I, you know, I've I got a wife, I got a mom, I got a sister, I got a daughter, I got some of my very best friends are women. Um, Female strength is something with which I'm well acquainted. You cannot watch a woman have a baby and not come to the conclusion that they're just tougher than we are. Okay, <laughs> you, you can't. You really can't reach a different conclusion. No, and, no, I. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so yeah, it's it's very much populated by female female leads. You know, the men are really kind of just the the luggage handlers for the women in this in these in these novels. At various times, they do take important <laughs> roles. In the in the third novel, Michael, of course, I think is like has, has really kind of come full flower. Like he's like he was sort of the the nerd. The, you know, in yeah. the first book, the kid who was all this technical know how, and by the third book, he's really kind of you know he's sort of leading the charge. His his uh, his uh, mental powers have have combined with a sort of um, deeper moral sense and a kind of physical and organizational strength that makes him an incredibly formidable guy and so yeah there's the male characters do important things but the women are their their center of the story <laughs> i i think too that you have a lot of fun with the the set pieces in this book mm-hmm. um and it's some of the set pieces in this, in a sense are, could be just novels in and of themselves mm-hmm. uh, especially i'm thinking of the siege set piece i mean that's mm-hmm. a that's a classic you know leningrad situation right yeah and leningrad is a good model too because yeah. i asked my daughter i'm writing this thing what what, what should i think about and she said she's a russian major so like think about leningrad okay um yeah the you know the the story you know sort of gathers into the, the biggest and most elaborate action sequence that I've ever written and will ever write. I mean, I have to say it's hundreds of pages of, you know, compressed, uh, every, every moment, totally fraught kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was in a, I, I, I realized the extent to which when I was writing that I was in, a, I had to drive in a totally different gear. I mean, it was really challenging because I also had to maintain the energy level for hundreds of pages. I mean, literally, ha- this book has got a 500 page action sequence in it, as far as I'm concerned. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 500 page manuscript. I don't know yeah. how it comes out in the actual book, but, mm-hmm. you know, once, once the hammer falls in this novel, it, it, it never stops. It just pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds until you get to the end of the story. I, uh, well, I agree. And, at the end, I think one of the things I was really struck by was the power of academic prose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when people are looking at things from the distant, distant future right. and speculating about this stuff, that kind of arid, you know, very careful, mm-hmm. this is all we know um, – prose becomes incredibly powerful because we do know. Because you know, right? <laughs> you have yeah. lived through it. Yeah, by the time you get to the end of the novel and you take a leap a thousand years into the future, which every, this is, it's not a spoiler because it's everywhere hinted at in the book. I mean, throughout the book, you've been seeing documents that are that are shown, they're, 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 you know they're part of an academic presentation at something called the Third Global Conference on the North American Quarantine Period, and that takes place a thousand years from now in somewhere in Australia, mm-hmm. right? So 
bad news, a thousand years in the future, academic conferences are still going on, right? <laughs> right. That really is the apocalypse. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is. There's nothing worse than all those academics hanging around at the bar worrying about who gets tenure, you know? But... Um, yeah, you get to the end of the novel and you see these characters in the future and they are puzzling over something that you already know very, very intimately. And it's an interesting place for a reader to be, mm -hmm. right? It's, and I think deeply pleasurable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's it's really uh, uh, rewarding for us yeah. as readers. Um, when you are, you are, do not shy away mm -hmm. from gore monsters you like yeah. your monsters and one yeah. of the things i think that's really important that differentiates your monsters from many a monster mm -hmm. is that your monsters are carefully created mm -hmm. as characters right. and that makes a huge difference i yeah um just the kind of like faceless horde that, that those monsters are just a version of setting right they're just mm -hmm. weather Right, you know, it's just like a, they're like a day of really bad weather. Okay, and Twister. yeah, and and the most the most interesting things, of course, are you know the, the most menacing things, of course, are, are things possessing individuality and intelligence. In other words, versions of people. Right, mm -hmm. and you take Fanning, for instance, who you know when you enter this book, you think of Fanning as the impossibly evil mastermind of apocalypse and it turns out he's anything but he's a he's he was he was born an innocent soul just like you and me and in some ways you know he was he was kind of backed into this position driven mad by certain events that occurred in his life it doesn't make him any less doesn't make his choices any less <laughs> any less bad um at the end but you understand him and the only way to capture a, a person is to capture their contradictions Right. That's 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 what mm -hmm. a personality is. If I had to define a personality, I would say it was a collection of contradictions. Sure. You sure. know, and you've got to put some dirt on the hero and you've got to put some sunshine on the villain. Otherwise, nothing feels real and therefore nothing is gained and nothing is lost in the story. You know, the villain has to be somebody with whom you can, to some degree, sympathize. And the, the hero has to be somebody whom you occasionally take moral exception to um, or feel superior to or feel judgmental toward. It just makes the whole thing seem like real life because that's what real life actually is. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no, there is no perfect villain and, and there is no perfect hero, and we have to sort that stuff out on our own, and it's not always easy. No, no, and and the characters watching the characters sort it out is a pleasurable storytelling experience mm -hmm. too. Story yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the people. I really, really wanted to write a story that was, and you use the word fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. That is never, nevertheless, feels like feels like the real world you know it follows the rules of of biology and physics and most importantly psychology you can mess with the first two mm -hmm. much more freely than you can mess with the third if a book is going to be effective and work and really be able to talk not just about the, just you know the characters and what happens to them but about the ideas that engage you as a person and as an artist right the, mm -hmm. the rules of human psychology you know how a personality feels how it operates that has to be the core of any well-told story mm -hmm. and i think when you talk about story i i love the your storytelling feel in this book mm -hmm. because the way that it plays out both on the small scale mm -hmm. in the individual scenes and also simultaneously on the bigger scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, as our readers, we're putting it together at two levels at once. And that's a, right. and it, not only is that an interesting storytelling experience, it's reading experience, it must be uh, an interesting story writing experience. Well, it's something I had to learn to do, and mm -hmm. I could find very few analogs for it, I confess. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I... When I wrote the the passage, I had I, I came to a you know, certain moment in the text where I realized I had to learn how to write a large scale action sequence in which events are happening simultaneously at different locations, but directly having direct bearing on each other. Right, mm. right. That I was like, oh, that's something I've never done. Right, I had never <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and a lot of writing is just, you know it's technical in a sense. There's a lot of logistics you have to work out. You can say in mm -hmm. your mind, oh, this is going to happen. Then when it actually gets there, you you realize how the hell am I going to make that happen on the page with a bunch of sentences, right? Yeah, right. And I found no satisfactory analogs for how to, you know, how to do that. I just couldn't find anything. And then I realized, well, I've watched these many times done well. What are, how does film handle this? Mm. And therefore, how would I use language to structure my scenes in a way that corresponded to the, to the practices of film, what movies did you 
Oh, all, all of them. I mean, like, no, I mean, like, you know, imagine, imagine any movie with a large battle sequence or any action sequence that mm-hmm. where that involves more than one location, and they all behave pretty much the same way, oh, right? Yeah. What they lack, of course, is internal narration. They lack narration of any kind, mm-hmm. right? It's purely visual. So you have to say, okay, how is narration going to work here? And what you do is you realize narration is what the director is telling his actors, mm-hmm. right? That's the corresponding force, which is something external to the narrative that knows more. Right. Mm-hmm. Then the characters, the imagined people, Jason Bourne driving around really fast. Right? right. The director knows more about the story than Jason Bourne does at right. that moment. And so what you need to do with, you know, on the page is to take your narrative intelligence. This is really technical and nerdy, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, because this is like that. This is how I think. It. OK. <laughs> what you have to do is you have to lift the camera a little bit. You have to give more omniscience to the narrator. Right. Mm-hmm. Give that narrator more formal storytelling reach in the same way that you're acquainted with it in a Dickens novel. Right. OK. Where you have it's not Charles Dickens. Everybody says Charles Dickens is commenting on the action. No, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens narrator is doing that. Those are two separate entities. Right. Mm-hmm. And the narrator's distance to the characters in the action can be modulated. You can adjust it. Right. Yeah, you can bring the character in that closely observed third exactly, person. Exactly, right. Yeah, and at, at its highest level, it's what, you're, what you have is the voice of the local god of the story, you know, mm-hmm. a completely omniscient intelligence hovering over all space and time. And what I discovered for scenes like that and other certain moments in the book where you have, like, broad historical reach, you've got to lift that camera. And you have to do it in a way that the reader is comfortable with. And there's certain techniques for doing that. And some of you do it by feel, and some of you do it really deliberately. But I had to learn how to do that stuff, and I had to grow, like, four hat sizes for that. <laughs> That was the hardest thing to learn here, absolutely. And for a while, I struggled with it until one day I really kind of came up with the film. You know, looking at film as a way to as a way to handle it. I think one of the things you do so well in this book. There are so many pieces of prose and paragraphs that are beautifully written, poetic, have the feel of literary fiction. Right. There are read aloud moments. They're mm-hmm. profound. But they're also driving the story at the mm-hmm. same time, and that uh, seems like that must have just come out of that an in the moment right. aspect of the writing. Well, yeah. Or was that out of just a uh, chiseling revision for four no, years? No, 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 no. That was in some ways was the easy stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that stuff corresponds most closely to my my own sort of personality, place in life, what I like to do with language. Um, and in some ways, that's the most deeply pleasurable stuff to do, where you get to say, you know, I'm going to write a beautiful sentence. Mm. And um, I love sentences. Most, that's what writing is. It's writing a series of sentences, oh, you yeah. know? And within that, you know, if you think of it that way, there's an intense variety of things that you can do at any given moment. I mean, it has to make rhetorical and logical and human sense as you go. But there's, a, there's an awful lot of, of, you know, of variety to it. And... I became a writer because I liked sentences, mm. I think. I became a reader because I liked stories, but I became a writer because I liked sentences. And my, my, I remember my, my first ambition as a writer was to write one beautiful sentence. And the beauty of a sentence comes from two places, the idea that it expresses and the music it makes. Right? I'm not surprised now that, I, that I've turned to music as kind of a midlife thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a sentence is a, is a unit of music too, and when you come to a moment in a, in a story that that you love, where the meaning seems kind of super saturated with the beauty of the sentence, it's because the sentence makes nice music too in your head, right? Uh-huh. I believe that very profoundly. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. very profoundly. Um, it's you know it's something I learned and explored, you know, early on. You know, you, you read a you start reading Shakespeare in high school. And even sometimes the meaning eludes you because the language is archaic, you know, mm-hmm. and you're a high school student in Massachusetts in the 1970s and you're reading Elizabethan poetry. Um, but you can f- feel the meaning through the music, too, in the same way if you go to a symphony, you know, or, or great, you know, or, you know, or rock concert. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, music is, music is emotion. Music is feeling. Music is meaning. And... There's a power to that. It's sure. a kind of a, it's a certain power. It's a you know I've never thought of it until you just said this, but it's really the music of sentences and the music of prose, mm-hmm. and even the the music of story that assembly mm-hmm. of of events. It's an experience of power that 
somebody has you in their power in mm. a manner that provides you with pleasure as opposed to right. tries to drive you to do something you don't want to do. Right, right. That's Which is word. why we love it. It's like going to, you know, going to listen to a piece of music that builds into some, brings you into a state of some kind of emotional aliveness, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and that happens that happens all the time. It's what I do. I often do it in my as part of my creative ritual, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, for instance, now I'm trying to start up writing the next thing, mm-hmm. right? And I have the idea and I have the basic kind of structure of it in my head, but I need to acquire my emotional relationship to the material. I know it corresponds very much to things that are pressing upon me now in a personal way, which is the only thing you should ever write. But mm-hmm. um, I have to work myself into the emotional state from which the book's um, voice will come. And I do that by swimming every day for an hour, listening to music on underwater headphones. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I listen to certain kinds of music. I won't go into the details, but it's whatever I've sort of run across that makes me think about the book, mm. right, in various ways. And it's never it's never music with words in it. It always it has to have no words because right. the words are mine. I'm, like, come, trying to come up with the words. That's um, uh, music for reading. I, I have a vast selection of music. Most of it has no words because right. I don't. You can't listen to them. Right, exactly. Words right. And read. Exactly. I mean, you could listen, I think, to an Italian opera if you didn't Maybe. speak Italian. Unfortunately, I speak a little Italian, so I'd have to listen to <laughs> Wagner, and that doesn't work at all. But, you know, um, so, but yeah, that's, you know, that the musical state is an emotionally alive state, mm. I think. And that's what books need to have. I mean, people read my books, and they often talk about how the books made them feel. Mm-hmm. And then what they made them think about. But first of all, how it made them feel. And that's your first goal. You're not going to reach people through anything other, or at least not as powerfully as, through, as anything except through their emotional apparatus, which is also... Um, directly linked to their sensory apparatus. I mean, we're 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 biological beings. We mm-hmm. walk around, and everything that comes to us comes through our sensorium. You know, and how you feel on a given day is linked very directly to your physical state. Mm-hmm. And music is um, an enhancement to or manipulation of the physical state. So the music of a sentence, right, is the way to go to the reader's feelings. Mm. Right to their feelings about right. what they're experiencing, and that's just—it's like bending a note on the guitar. Right, exactly. It's super important to me. It's what mm-hmm. I think about when I'm writing a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, people say, "Oh, your books take so long to write." It's like, well, because I'm writing a book and trying to write a symphony at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really feel that way. You know, people can judge whether or not I've succeeded, but that's kind of the goal, and it seems lofty, I suppose. But it also, to me, is just intrinsic to the enterprise. It's how I—it's how I came to like this stuff. Right, it's how I, it's why I do it. I, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, when we last spoke, you were talking. Um, let's talk a little bit about that next thing. Okay. Uh, I won't tell you very much. Okay. Yeah. Is it is set is it set in this world? In um, the world of these books? Yeah. Oh, in this no no I'm gonna. This was a story that has reached its end. I oh. never viewed the passage as material. Mm. The way some writers will say, okay, I'm gonna build a world and then I'll stay in it for as many books or mm-hmm. seasons as in television I can't I can uh. sustain it because those things always peter out mm-hmm. right and the Passage Trilogy Passage 12 City Mirrors is really one large novel mm-hmm. right exactly um, it's really a you know in manuscript about a 3500 page novel um, and when I reach the end I reach the end it's done mm. it's done you know okay. um, I may at some point go do a, like a kind of spinoff book that I'm intrigued by really a a story that never made its way in because it was large, elaborate, and had no kind of there was no sort of logical way of connecting it to the narrative. It would have, it would have kind of been too big of a sidebar. But a story that I'm really intrigued by that takes place another one that takes place in the here and now, a here mm-hmm. and now story that I'd like to tell. Um, uh, but that's a few books away. I really want to do something else because I've ne- I, one of the things I don't want to do as a writer is just keep doing the same thing it's the beauty of my job is i have no boss mm. and um in the same way that the my first two books and the passage trilogy are very different i don't want the next thing i, I do to be very different in the sense of like ra- a radical shift but i want it to contain kind of new challenges and and things to keep me interested and and create a new world new people new mm. events and what is the progress towards uh, getting this on the big screen, small screen, some screen? We're going to small screen. Okay, that's that's good. been that's been officially kind of inked. 
Um, it's taken a while to move it there. I've always known that the big screen was kind of an unlikely destination for it because it just simply is not that compatible with the way movies are made and, right. and, and uh, the way they're financed and how much story they can tell. Right. And the Passage trilogy involves its cast of thousands. It's an ensemble piece. Sure. Right? It's an ensemble piece with that is hard to unpack you know if you take one character out of this mm-hmm. it the whole thing's the whole thing's going to start getting really really shaky and you take two and it's really shaky and you take three out and the thing collapses like mm-hmm. a house of cards so i always knew that was going to be a problem and i wanted it to move it towards television i also just think television is where the really good storytelling is going on right now mm-hmm. more than movies more than like you know the big tent pole summer movies with a ton of CGI. I'm tired of those. I sat through too many with my kids. Mm-hmm. And but television, oh my God, I'm on a book tour. Let me tell you, like you make sure you have a couple of really good shows to be watching on the plane, <laughs> you know. And unfortunately, I'm all caught up on The Americans, which mm-hmm. is my current favorite show because it's actually about my own marriage. Um, <laughs> but I just started watching Masters of Sex, which was recommended to me by a writer friend, and it's terrific. And Television got taken over by writers, uh, you know, starting, oh, I don't know, The Sopranos in this country was kind of the first one where right. we, like, we started getting really great storytelling on television. I actually traced the whole thing back to the BBC's um, uh, version of Brideshead Revisited. That's what I was going to say was Brideshead yeah. Revisited was yeah. the first one. Brideshead Revisited was the first one. And, and the thing that's most salient feature about that, that miniseries, which I watched voraciously in 1981 or two I think it was 82 I was mm-hmm. a sophomore in college we used to have like brideshead parties we'd all dress up and watch it on my little like <laughs> 11 inch black and white tv um the thing about it was it follows the novel completely right it's yeah, not yeah. a long novel it has a lot of space in it to to admit all the parts of all the, of the every every line of dialogue like every thought in that book seems to be in that television show and it's like 10 or 12 hours of television for a novel that was really just um you know a couple hundred pages long it's actually one of Evelyn was shorter novels I've been speaking with Justin Cronin. His new novel is The City of Mirrors. Thank you for joining me, Justin. Oh, it was a great pleasure being here with you again. I hope we can talk the next time I write something. I hope so, too. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.